This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, plus the opportunity to vote each week on what upcoming topics we'll cover, while full membership gets you all that, plus members-only bonus episodes with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the war on Christmas, but unlike in years past when we've focused on sort of local skirmishes and hotspots in the war, this year we'll be taking a step back to better understand the context of the war and how we got ourselves into this quagmire, uh, which is presumably costing us untold amounts of blood and treasure. Clips today come from This Is Hell, Past Present, The Chauncey De Vega Show, and Messy Mouthy Mandatory. So you write that uh, religion is only one element, ultimately and surprisingly a small element in Christmas as we know it, for there is Christmas the way it is celebrated in our own culture, Christmas the way it is celebrated in your own, in our own home, and Christmas the way it is celebrated in the mass media, in books and newspapers and magazines, on and film and uh, on television. All these Christmases are related to each other, but they are not identical. But Judith, if they're all Christmas, then don't they all have something to do with Christ? Aren't they all about the birth of Christ? Or are they all not Christmas? That is, are they solstice celebrations or something else? Well, when I started off researching, I expected to find an awful lot of religion. And I just didn't. It was sort of like being one of those truffle hunting dogs. There's a hell of a lot of running around and not a lot of results. Um, one of the things that I discovered quite early on, the first official Christmas, the church decided that the 25th of December would be the day that marked the Nativity of Christ in the 4th century. And within 30 years of that decision, we know that already the church hierarchy was disturbed by what Christmas had turned into. Uh, We have records that the Archbishop of Constantinople um, at that date warned his flock against the excessive feasting and dancing that was going on on that day. Now, every parent knows that you don't warn children about things they're not going to do. So historians look for warnings um, because it's what people are doing. So just like parents don't say, kids, don't put beans up your noses, because kids on the whole don't put beans up their noses, then we know that if they're warning about excessive feasting and dancing, by God, excessive feasting and dancing is going on. (laughs) To what degree has there always then been a war over Christmas between the secular and the religious? There hasn't been. The religious really hasn't put up much fight. Um, There's been very little war because the secular has been running the holiday since the 4th century. The holiday has always been about consumption. In the older days before industrialization, the consumption was mostly food and an awful lot of drink. And post-industrialization, with mass production, cheaper goods, it became about toys and games and other things for children as well. 
but it's always been about consuming. So uh, I never thought of Christmas as a political thing until conservatives started the war on Christmas, politicization of Christmas. How new is the politicization of Christmas? Or did that happen in the past just in a different way? Um, Well, there are two separate things, I think, until, um, as you say, this most recent spate of um, let me try and think of a really serious academic term for it, total balls, um, that is the war on Christmas. The only war on Christmas that historically has ever been waged has been by the Christian church. In the 17th century, the Puritan church banned Christmas. They waged war on Christmas. So the only people we can claim have ever waged war, much less successful war, on Christmas has been the church itself. So uh, you write, of course, there is that wondrous and nostalgically flawless day that is seared in our memories, the day that we can never quite recapture the perfect Christmas. The poet C. Day Lewis got it right when he wrote, there are not Christmases, there is only Christmas, a composite day made up from the haunting impression of many Christmas days, a work of art painted by memory. That is the key. How real is that memory we have of Christmas and how impossible is it to recreate that memory no matter how flawed that memory may be? Well, I think that the question only comes up because we kind of misunderstand what Christmas is. What the real core of Christmas is precisely nostalgia, is wanting to believe that there was a better time, because, of course, that allows us to believe there will be again a better time. It makes us feel better. So whether we're looking back to the perfect days of our childhood or whether we're looking back to a perfect time of magic Christmases, whether it's Norman Rockwell's 1950s drawings, even though Norman Rockwell himself drew pictures looking back to the perfect Christmas of the 19th century. And in the 19th century, people look back at the perfect Christmases of the 16th century. The earliest reference that I found comes from 1616, when I found a play by Ben Johnson, where one of the characters basically says, oh, this modern Christmas is awful. You should have seen Christmas in the good old days. We ha- Christmas is about believing that time was better before. So it's a weird thing because it's about our hopes, but it's not about our hopes in the future, but trying to find our hopes in the past, which I find fascinating. You write, for the holiday piles legend upon legend, Santa Claus was created in the Netherlands, or maybe his red suit was invented by the Coca-Cola Corporation. Prince Albert was the person to bring German Christmas trees to Britain. In the Middle Ages, the great feudal lords kept seasonal open house and fed anyone who appeared. The Roman Saturnalia was the origin of Christmas Day, or maybe it was the Feast of Woden, except, except, of course, none of these things is true. At Christmas and about Christmas, what is true and what we think is true is hard to separate from what we would simply like to believe is true. How much do we realize that what we believe about Christmas is false? Because before reading your book, I really did think Santa Claus, as we know him today, was a creation of Thomas Nast for Coca-Cola and that many of the Christmas traditions came from 
earlier solstice celebrations like Saturnalia. So how much do we realize that what we believe about Christmas is false? Um, I don't think we realize any of it is false um, until you start to explore, and then you realize it all is. Um, first of all, I must say, your, your, your idea of Thomas Mass drawing pictures for Coca-Cola is a new one on me. That one I hadn't heard. Uh, apart from anything else, Thomas Nast was dead long before Coca-Cola came along. But hey, um, it's Christmas. We can believe anything. Um, Thomas Nast drew Santa Clauses in from the 1860s to the 1880s. Uh, the Coca-Cola company picked up many of his motifs and recreated them, in, of course, in glorious Technicolor this time. In, from the 1930s to the 1960s. Neither of them, of course, are the sole creator of that fat, red ma- fat man in a red suit. Those are different elements that come from all sorts of places. Thomas Nast chose the fur coat of that lovely slum landlord, John Jacob Astor. He chose the face of a painting of Bacchus, the god, Greek god of wine. So he did those things, uh, the sort of flyboy boots that Santa now wears, sort of half motorcycle, half flyboy boots, are pretty much a thing of World War I. Um, they all come from all sorts of different places. So uh, what does it say to me about myself when I believe in Coca-Cola creating Santa and Christmas originally being a pagan holiday? Can Can we discover something about ourselves by investigating our own Christmas beliefs? For instance, does this say to me that I'm skeptical of anything touched by capitalism and that I hope that Christmas transcends only one religion on the planet by it being a pagan ritual originally? I think think we all choose the myths that we like, but also it's all part of... Christmas is... So much a conflation of what you believe, what your parents told you, what you learned in school, what you've read in books. So you've got these layers of myths to work through, The which ones stick and which ones you like and which ones you therefore believe. Um, obviously, yes, they a lot about you personally, but they say a lot about the culture you live in. And that's why we all have slightly different stories. So if Christmas wasn't originally religious, how much has religion, in particular Christianity, tried to co-opt Christmas? Well, that that's the interesting part, I think, is how much the secular accoutrement of Christmas has been taken over by the Church. Um, whether it's things like the Christmas tree, which started off as a non-Christmas winter element, um, became linked to Christmas, and then in the 19th century, and even more in the early 20th, the Sunday school movement and the church take over that element and use it because hey, they want people in their doors just as much as Macy's want people in their doors. They're they're looking for customers. Um, So the various church elements have changed over the centuries. Precisely one of the 
very famous things in England is a uh, church service, which is broadcast just before Christmas um, from King's College, Cambridge, the chapel of King's College, Cambridge here, which is called the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols. And it's a church service. But until the late 19th century, carols weren't sung in church. Carols were a song of songs of the people. They were working class, and they were considered a bit vulgar by the middle classes. It's only late in the 19th century that the middle classes take to them, and then the church co-opts them and makes them part of the church services. Neil, help us put this war on Christmas into a broader context. Is this lineage with Bill O'Reilly and John Gibson, is that right? Or is there a deeper well that O'Reilly and others are drawing from? Well, I think it's right to tie this story to that O'Reilly moment. So in 2004, Bill O'Reilly on his evening program began a regular series on his show called Christmas Under Siege. And this took off immediately. And as you say, there was a book written by John Gibson a couple years later. This has really been a media phenomenon of the last 10 years or so. But I do think it's tapping into cultural fears that have deeper roots, probably stretching back into the 1960s. What kind of cultural fears? Well, I think that with the rise of diversity and of multiculturalism, I think a lot of older Christians have felt that their own cultural prominence that they took for granted, one example here being of Christmas, that a lot of that was being pushed aside or at least minimized. Part of that is in response to how Christmas really was the dominant American winter holiday. And there was a rise of alternative holidays beginning in the post-war period. So in 1965, you get the invention of Kwanzaa as the first African-American holiday. In 1985, 20 years later, you have Panchakanapati, which was a Hindu alternative to the Christmas holidays. Hanukkah grows in importance in North America in the later half of the 20th century. So there are rising alternative winter holidays that really, I think, are in response to the fact that Christmas had this unique place on the American calendar. It's the only federal holiday that has explicit religious origins. Yeah, and I think that the fact that it exists in that way, you can hear, and I say this as a non-Christian, but the war on Christmas sounds like is can't we just have this one day? We're being beaten back in every other regard in terms of multiculturalism in the schools. Can't we just have this one day be ours? I think that one hears, or I certainly do, in the declarations that there is a war on Christmas and that the aggressors against Christmas are bad people, this sense that like this was this one special day. Can't we just have it? So I think, Nikki, that speaks to the uniqueness that you mentioned. There was this moment when people did begin to question the ubiquity of Christmas greetings and Christmas celebrations, to begin to ask the question, why is it that we have these particularly government-funded celebrations of an explicitly Christian holiday? And in order to understand that, we need to understand 
the uniqueness of the Christmas holiday. It's mixed origins because it is explicitly Christian, but it also has a lot of pagan and secular parts to it. Well, I think that's where we get into the fraught nature of Christmas for Christians. And I think that that's actually being lost in the current war on Christmas debate. Just to sketch out a general history of the holiday of Christmas, it wasn't really until about the mid-300s AD that the church chose December 25th as the day for Christmas. And, you know, most Christian scholars point to the fact that the celebration of Christmas is not actually a biblical event. There's no biblical command to celebrate the birth of Christ. I was researching and found a comment from Ezra Stiles, the Congregationalist minister who became the president of Yale. And in 1776, he said, if it had been the will of Christ, that the anniversary of his birth should have been celebrated, he would at least let us have known the day. So there's this idea that, you know, if, <laughs> if the Bible doesn't make a big mention or any mention of particular day happening, and certainly of no recorded celebration of the event through the New Testament, most early Christians didn't see it as something to note, let alone to make into a holiday. Well, I think that ties back into our conversation that we had about Halloween, this process of not eliminating pagan holidays, but Christianizing. Them. Right. And so the church in the in about 336 AD chose December 25th as the day to mark the holiday. And they did that for a very particular reason. By tapping into the season of harvest and winter solstice festivals that were already in place. These were times of very decadent traditions where people at the end of a harvest would celebrate through a lot of drinking, a lot of, you know, everything else, the end of that holiday. That sounds like my harvest season. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking it actually kind of reminds me more of our more recent phenomenon of SantaCon. You know, these roving masses of young people who do the pub crawls wreaking havoc on a Saturday. Um, in early in December. So, but in many ways, those folks of SantaCon are actually replicating more of the historical pattern of Christmas celebration of, of the this Bacchanale. like absolutely this raucous, ongoing hedonist pleasure seeking experience. Well, that's obviously at odds with the religious celebration of Christmas. And so most Christians through the centuries didn't have anything to do with Christmas. And if anything, the task was trying to Christianize it and to make it more Christian. I was fascinated to learn that certainly in the colonial era of Ezra Stiles, who you mentioned, but even through the 19th century, that plenty of Protestants actually looked down at all of the Christmas celebration, right. as you say, as something that was Catholic and kind mm -hmm. of tacky and materialistic and that is so interesting because today I think it's kind of hard in mainstream popular culture to separate Christmas from one, Christianity undefined, and two, from materialism. So to think that Protestants were rejecting that Christmas celebration, and particularly the materialistic and the showy aspect of it, as distinctly Catholic and something they weren't part of, that's really interesting to me. And not just looking down on it, Natalia, but in the late 17th century, actually banning the celebration of Christmas in Puritan mm -hmm. colonies. I think just to make one more point about the Puritans, the example of the Puritans outlawing Christmas is really interesting here because it actually shows that the close relationship between church and state in that time period was what allowed for Christmas to be suppressed uh, yes. and only visible at like the margins of society. And it's actually the separation of church and state in the new nation that in part helps allow Christmas to begin to flourish as a holiday because you don't have church-state apparatus working together to make sure a holiday isn't happening. And I think that those tensions 
run through to today. I mean, Christmas has certainly become a mainstream holiday, one that has secular components and Christian components. But my understanding is that in many Christian communities, the war on Christmas is the rising commercialism of Christmas. Right. And that's why with our opening point, I want to draw a distinction between the war on Christmas as a media story versus a religious story. Because when you look at religious periodicals, at religious leaders who talk about war on Christmas, they are not First of all, they're not really talking about it that much. They're not really engaging the storyline other than, as you say, Nikki, a longer cultural critique they've been making about fears of the commercialism of this religious holiday. And so if anything, what they've done is taken this war on Christmas cultural meme and turned it so that they're not supporting the conservative cultural argument as much as that they're using it to pivot to a religious critique of this is the place we've gotten to where we expect Walmart to greet us with a religious message. Mm-hmm. And that that's a wrong expectation on our part. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's much more complicated. Absolutely. Because it comes off as such a soundbite. To me, who before researching this didn't think so deeply about the war on Christmas, to me it was just like another shot in the culture wars and another way to say like we hate outsiders, basically. Losers on a Christmas Eve. You may have previously thought that internet service providers and mobile carriers only made money by selling you services like providing access to the internet and mobile networks, but as a listener of this show, you should already know that big corporations run a side hustle, selling your data where you are no longer the customer, but the product. Plus, Congress and the FCC aren't helping by failing to save net neutrality or protect your privacy online. Now, internet providers and mobile carriers like Comcast and Verizon are free to restrict websites, spy on your online activity, or sell your browsing history to advertisers. In short, you simply have to be proactive to protect your privacy, and with one click, ExpressVPN shields your online activity from internet and mobile providers, hackers, and spies. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, and tablet, securing and anonymizing your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. I have ExpressVPN set up on all my devices, and in all honesty, it's not just for security, but the other great thing it can be used for is overcoming geographical restrictions you may come across online, usually when trying to watch a video. With ExpressVPN and a couple of clicks, my computer can be virtually transported to just about any country I want. You can get ExpressVPN protection for less than 7 bucks a month, and it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you have nothing to lose but all those electric prying eyes following you around the web. To take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free, go to expressvpn.com left for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com left to learn more. How much is Christmas then today? Because you were talking about the Queen's speech. How much is it a creation of not just U.S., but Western mass media? How much uh, has U.S. mass media, Western mass media made that that Christmas, that uh, Anglican, Germanic, American Christmas, the most commonly celebrated Christmas around the globe? Hugely, it has taken what were very specific elements from very specific regions 
whether it was the Christmas tree, which for the most part was a thing that came from the Strasbourg region in Germany, or whether it was um, mumming, which was an English or a Northern European tradition, all sorts of traditions. And then because they appear in books, in magazines, in stories, in newspapers in the 19th century, and then in the 20th century on radio, television, in movies, these traditions spread. And so you can see, for instance, if you go to Japan in December, a a country which has barely any Christian elements. I mean, the Christian population in Japan is extremely small and not remotely influential. But the elements of commercial Christmas are enormous. It's everywhere. Um, If you want to misspend an hour or two of your life, Google Japanese shopping mall Christmas trees. Because apart from anything else, the Godzilla Christmas tree is not to be missed. I'll definitely have to check that out. I was just talking to a friend of mine uh, who was uh, a friend of mine is in Japan right now. Another friend of mine lives in Hong Kong. And my friend in Hong Mm -hmm. Kong said, you would not believe how Hong Kong tricks itself out for uh, the Christmas holidays, how it looks so Christmassy, how there's the Santa Claus, there's everything. And yet there's no real sense of Christmas. It's all about the commercialism. And you write uh, that Libanius, a pagan Greek philosopher, described the Kalends celebrations of the 4th century, and they already sound familiar, featuring carousels and well-laden tables, abundance for the rich, and for the poor, better food than usual. It was a time of spending. People are not only generous towards themselves, but also towards their fellow men, he wrote. There was also a strong element of society turned upside down as masters waited on their slaves, and so Senators dressed as plebeians. And to this day, in much of the English-speaking world, outside the U.S., where the British Empire once ruled, and in Britain as well, they all still celebrate Boxing Day on the day after Christmas, where the masters wait on the servants, and the servants are served by their masters. How much is Christmas a celebration of capitalism, as in the purchasing of good, while having an anti-capitalist message of good will toward men and challenging class structures? Interesting, isn't it? Because I think it's not so much. I mean, it, it has become, of course, an entirely capitalist consumerist holiday because we live in a capitalist consumerist world. Things don't survive without taking on the flavor of their surroundings. But what it really begins is a festival of a, a seasonal festival. You've got in a pre-industrial agricultural world, this is the downtime. This is the time in the Northern Hemisphere where not very much is going on, where you have already brewed your beer or um, made your wine for the year. You've slaughtered the animals that you can't afford to overwinter. So you've got food, you've got drink, and you've got not very much to do. So it's not remotely surprising that there are a bunch of festivals that cluster around this time of the year. It is the logical time to have them. And I was wondering... Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, when I was after I read your book and I was uh, last night, I was watching, because of your book, 
I was watching The Miracle on 34th Street and how that story is the epitome of trying to link commercialism to the, you know, charity of Santa Claus. I mean, to the point where it's you know, running ads for Macy's and Gimbel's and it's clearly something that is just trying to promote commercialism. How much more do we see that in in uh, the hyper-consumerist United States? Did that become more and more, did the commercialism become more and more commercialized, if you will? Was that more and more of a central aspect of the Western message of Christmas as time went went on in the 20th century? I think you're looking at it backwards. I think you're, you, you've just got to accept that as capitalism takes over with the birth of the Industrial Revolution, Christmas grows with it, that you can't separate them. You, you can't say, you know, Christmas stays austere and pure. Um, it is part of the culture. And therefore, it becomes what the culture around it is. Um, you, you, you can't take Christmas out of the culture. It is part of it. So how much can we look at the way Christmas is celebrated then and see Anglican, German, and even American history? Does the way we celebrate Christmas or the way they did tell, uh, celebrate Christmas, tell a story about Victorian England, 15th century Germany, and uh, 20th century America, all separately and together. How much can we view the past's history, how much can we view uh, what a country was like by viewing their Christmas celebrations? Oh, I think very much. And I think we can precisely see the big shift in Christmas how we mark the various kinds of Christmas absolutely with the various re revolutions, whether we're looking at the American Revolution, whether we're looking at the Industrial Revolution, we're looking at the, the um, English Revolution, which, which is when they um, cut off Charles I's head um, and, and is the first period in which Christmas is banned. Absolutely, Christmas responds to the important political event because it is part of the culture. So what you can see each time is, yes, you have, for example, in parts of Pennsylvania in the 20th century, you have uh, these Christmas pots, which are decorated sort of elaborate miniature stage sets. They're like nativity scenes on steroids. Um, but because of the culture of the community, they are community events, and people go from house to house looking at these putzes. Um, or you have in Germany in the early 20th century, um, in the 1930s, you can see how Christmas elements are changed as the Nazis come to power in the 30s. And they deliberately set out to change many of the Christmas markers as part of their desire to promote the idea of the Aryan culture. Absolutely, in exchange in, in Washington, after Pearl Harbor, I think it's two weeks after Pearl Harbor, there is officially a blackout. There are supposed to be no lights on in the city at all. 
because they're worried about more bombing. But lighting the Christmas tree outside the White House is important enough that they break the blackout to do it. So Christmas is integral. You can't separate it from the rest of the culture. So how much then is Christmas, if it is globalized through the U.S. media, how much, or our image of it at least, how much is Christmas a symbol of America to the rest of the world? What does Christmas say to the world about the United States? Well, I think that's very interesting because I think that while the bulk of the elements now have been, if not born in America, have been Americanized, what's fascinating to me is how each culture still believes that their Christmas, whatever the there is, is the authentic Christmas of their culture. We cling very closely to this idea. And we all have, to a degree, different elements. Whether it is um, in Italy, the stress is on Christmas Eve and the big family meal on Christmas Eve. Or whether it is in England, the liking for ghost stories at Christmas, or whether it is in America, uh, the, the, the Macy's parade sort of starting the season. Each culture believes very strongly that their own elements are the real ones. And I think it's this clinging to this belief that is so fascinating, even as we all watch television, we all watch movies, and we see that these customs are everywhere. Yet we can still tell ourselves they're ours. You write the nature of giving and of expectations had changed once Santa became a department store regular Children had initially received improving gifts before these gave way to toys selected to reflect what parents believe their children might like or at least ought to like. But when children were sitting on Santa's lap and listing out their desires, gifts were no longer expressions of parental hopes, expectations, or affection for their children. The children were now, if at once removed, shopping, actively engaged in the culture of consumerism. To what degree, then, is Santa the gateway for children to understand consumerism, even capitalism? Absolutely. And this is the thing that's so fascinating about Santa is as the the focal point of so much of Christmas, he is, of course, the exact opposite in many ways of Christ, whether it's physical, fat, thin, old, young. Uh, He lives in the North Pole, not in the Middle East. He owns a factory. He provides luxury goods. Um, At a stretch, you could do water into wine as perhaps Christ's token towards luxury goods. Um, He is absolutely the opposite of all religious teachings. And yet, somehow we have merged in our minds because they are, and I'm making air quotes here, given away these toys that he brings, we can disguise the overt consumerism. And and there are many instances of these that, that go back even before Santa. For example, if you think of the Christmas tree, uh, in the 19th century, the tradition was for smaller gifts that they were actually tied onto the branches or put in little 
baskets and sort of different holders which got strung onto the branches of the tree. And there was also fruit and nuts and um, cookies that were tied onto the tree. And so if you like, the tree itself became a, a display case. It's like a shop with all the goods on display. And there is, it's not a custom that's particularly common in England. The, the American custom of putting the tree in the window of the house is like putting the, tree, putting the shelves on display in a shop window. So how much do we give conflicting and contradictory lessons about Christmas to our kids? How confusing can it be? Because it seems like it's teaching kids that both charity and gluttony can somehow coexist. Um, yeah, I don't think it's the only time of year that we give kids conflicting messages. Um, you know, children don't tell lies. No officer, I wasn't going 30 miles an hour. <laughs> um, we tell, we, you know, we, we give kids confusing messages all the time. But it, Christmas, as you say, absolutely is a magnet for these confusing messages. And it's like in Alice in Wonderland, where the White Queen believes six impossible things before breakfast. At Christmas time, we can believe a dozen impossible things before breakfast without even knowing they're mutually contradictory. He came in like a Santa Claus, down the chimney like he always does. Only crumbs left where the cookie was. All he ever did was give gifts to me. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. In 2013, Amy Errett founded the company and named it after her daughter on a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. Traditionally, there have been two options, outdated at-home hair color or the time and expense of a salon. Dissatisfied with the status quo, Madison Reed is reinventing the way women color their hair by offering the quality of salon color, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. Experience beautiful multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door, on your schedule, for under 25 bucks. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of Love listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com and use the promo code LEFT. He filled up his sack, threw it on his back, he has presents for Going back to thinking about how white supremacists have been so much more sophisticated in terms of understanding the power of culture and language. So they reframe themselves first from white supremacists to white nationalists, functionally the same damn thing. But then they get mainstream media and other folks to say white nationalists. Then the next step is alt-right. Well, the alt-right are white supremacists, for all intents and purposes, but now they rebrand themselves again to sound more benign. And now, again, thinking about the power of language, we can go online and you can look at all these examples about how they're doing the whole okay, wink, wink to one another when pictures and saying, well, they're just trolling people. No, they're communicating their white supremacist bona fides or bona fides and their beliefs with that symbol. And now the war on Christmas is a great one, which is why I reached out to you. Can you sort of explain again, connecting the dots, as I like to say, in terms of the use of language and culture, what sort of political work racially, culturally, ideologically 
is the right wing's obsession with this war on Christmas doing? And how does that fit into the white supremacist narrative or white supremacist logic? We can talk about Trump, the individual, but there is this normalization of white supremacist rhetoric that has to be evaluated, that the war on Christmas issue, it's not about if you say Merry Christmas, you're a racist. And the Twitter fallout from that Newsweek piece has been so funny that all these people think, oh, if you say Merry Christmas, now you're a racist. That's not the point. The point is the pushback. You know, it's it's context and it's nuance. It's the stuff that these people seem to not want to get into. It's why are you saying Merry Christmas? I said Merry Christmas. I, you know, celebrate Christmas and I say Merry Christmas and I'm not, you know, a white nationalist. It is why you're saying it. You're saying it because you don't want to have to say happy holidays because there are Jews and Muslims and pagans and those folks out there. Then that needs to be examined. It's why the need to say it. I mean, obviously, Barack Obama, we have the video footage, roll tape that said Merry Christmas over and over again. It's what is the context of this, quote unquote, war on Christmas thing all about? It's about the pushback against multiculturalism and the fear that, you know, wasp America is being taken away. And that context needs to be discussed. But again, sort of working through the political logic here, the emotion, the sort of political labor and work that that phrase does for Donald Trump and white conservatives and other white supremacists. Again, help me understand. Maybe it's my religious priors or lack thereof, or maybe it's just because I don't travel in these circles because, again, our world is so culturally and racially and politically segregated right now in this country. These folks who are so animated, who are so moved, who actually think this is a real substantive issue, this Merry Christmas, War on Christmas stuff, are they just that empty? I mean, in terms of the psychological wages, again, going back to psychological wages of whiteness, are they that socially atomized? I mean, why do they actually believe? Number one, why is it significant to them? Because I think it's funny. And why would it actually impact how they understand politics and voting? How and why does it resonate, do you think? Well, I think about members of my own family. When I think about family members I have in Chattanooga, Tennessee, who feel this is a political statement to say Merry Christmas because they feel their country is being taken away. Everything that is sacred, and I underline that word sacred, being taken away by these forces that are in Hollywood that are in New York, which, of course, you know, the white supremacists would call it Jew York. Their picture of the world is being taken away. So it goes back to where I started. This rapid change that's happening in this country is challenging. You know, it, it is challenging. I mean, we've got people in this in our communities now from many different backgrounds, just like we've always had. I mean, this has always been a nation of immigrants, but, you know, that are less likely to be Christian or less likely to be white or less likely to be heterosexual, (laughs) cisgendered. I mean, all these changes are upsetting. So it goes back to that defensive position. It's not that they're empty. They're just kind of freaked out. And they don't have the skills to manage the change in a way that would actually make their lives better. We always feel that my life is better because there is so much diversity in my world. But just, you know, the fact that there are all these great people from many different backgrounds that I can connect to makes my life more enjoyable. And they haven't gotten a memo on that. They're in this defensive notion that anything that I don't know about is frightening. uh, And therefore, I don't want to have to deal with it. I want to go back to something that is secure and that I know.
Can we talk about the most fucked up Christmas song? Yeah, go Do ahead. Do you know which one I'm going to say? Um, no, it's, I really don't. I well, want to. I could spend time trying to figure it out, but it'll take a lot no, no, of no, time. Let's not, so let's, let's not, not do it. You tell me. Well, a lot of people think it's "Baby, It's Cold Outside." Oh, I know that one. Oh, of course, that is so obviously bad that I didn't even think of it. Okay, but you guys, <laughs> it's actually not. Wow, it's actually not because it was written uh-huh. at a time. Yes, when women were not empowered to say yes, I want to fuck. And so if you look at this song through the lens of the context in which it was written, the social context in which it was written, she is actually saying yes. You know what I mean? Like yes. she is adding excuses uh, into this the song. This is interesting. Is this your own analysis? Fuck no. Well, no, no, I mean, no. I'm I would, not that smart. I I'm, trust like, it. I'm like Captain Obvious. I'm like, she says, what's in this drink? It's a rape anthem. Yeah. I obviously <laughs> think that's exactly what it was. But no, a lot of people who are smarter than I was were like, guys, slow your roll. Let's actually look at this. Baby, it's cold outside is not a rape anthem. That being said, if you if it were written today, it would be pretty fucked up. But it was written in like the 40s or the third. I don't I don't know. It was written a long time ago. So it was a way of kind of getting it on on Christmas. Correct. In the best possible way a woman could exactly. express it. Exactly. You know, and over like and over coy. again. Over it coy, totally. And over and over again in the song, she's like, but people, what are people going to say? There's bound to be talk tomorrow. Think of my lifelong At sorrow. At least there will be plenty implied. If you got pneumonia and die. I really can't. My parents are going to be worried. My sister's going to, you know, talk and whatever. Sure my hurry. father will be pacing the floor. Listen to the fireplace so roar. So really. I'd better skirt. So she's really concerned about her reputation, but then at the same time, she's not actually fucking going. Maybe just a cigarette more. Never such a blizzard before. I've got to get home. But maybe you'd freeze out. There. Okay, she's I, not like hand me my coke, get the fuck out of my way. She's like, well, maybe I will hang out a little bit interesting. longer. Interesting. I you think know. that's really an interesting way to think about that song. I appreciate that because I was just like, we hate that song. We can't listen to that song anymore. It's bad. And no, no, now no. I feel like it's maybe totally it's fine. okay. You know what song you can't listen to? The most fucked up um, Christmas I song. I saw Mommy kissing Santa Claus, which is totally weird. No, that's, we're not slut-shaming Mommy. She can kiss whoever the fuck that's, she wants to. I don't... But people in disguises okay, coming into weird. your yeah. house. Yeah, yeah. Plus beards. Plus in front of the children. Beards. I just... It's it's not like a, a fake adultery. No. The most fucked up Christmas song is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Dahmer and Blitzen. Because because <laughs> Rudolph is fucking bullied. All of the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names. They never let poor Rudolph. Yes, and of course, but yes, he's rede- there's no, redemption at the end. No, they're not like I'm really sorry, Rudolph. Right, they're just like you became a they're winner like, hero. You're fucking useful. Now you're buff. Get on the sleigh, Rudolph, with your nose so bright. Won't you guide my sleigh tonight? Mm. It's fucked up. Then how the reindeer loved him as they shot it out with oh, it's fucked up. He's harnessed up. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer. You go down in history. It's like the it's like the ugly duckling story where everyone's like, oh stupid ugly duckling, and they're like, oh you're gorgeous now. Now you're I gorgeous like you. now. Or well, fuck you. I, okay. Maybe I don't want to hang out with you. I wish Rudolph would be like, fuck all y'all. I'm not pulling the sled. No. Okay. You can get your own fucking lantern yeah. and hang it around your neck or whatever. Users. Yeah, exactly. Users all and right. haters. Dasher, dancer, the whole fucking lot of them. <laughs> Let's not even get to Santa. Oh, my God. I mean, he sets the example for the reindeer. Totally. I know. He is a role Why model. Why didn't he protect Rudolph? I don't know. He was like, well, I guess 
That's good for young reindeer. They got to be tough. tough reindeer don't cry. You got to tough up those hooves. Yeah, it's like Friday Night Lights at the North. It's like North Pole <laughs> Lights. He's like the coach. Wish I could stay. Baby, it's cold outside. Got to go away. Baby, it's cold outside. The evening is busy. So glad you stopped so in. So very nice. Be careful driving on the ice. If I did spend the night. Saying yes is your right. People would call me a whore. Can't they see you're so much more? If I just if you say no, it's alright. Gender roles are such a chore. Be who you want to be. You and I shouldn't drink. Fuck the patriarchy. How much is Christmas historic denialism? Because you write part of the meaning of Christmas is in repetition, but a very particular form of repetition, a repetition of forgetting and remembering, of remembering and misremembering. It is this cycle of death and renewal that is the heart of Christmas. It allows us an illusion of stability of long-established communities, a way to believe in an imagined past when it was safe for children to play in the street, when no one locked their doors and everybody knew their neighbors, all the while unconsciously omitting the less desirable parts of those times. So how much is Christmas historical denialism. How much does it allow us to de- deny our real past? Oh, it, it, exactly the same way um, the rest, the other 364 days of the year do. The same way you have people who say, oh, we want to go back to those happy times of the 1950s, um, which were happy unless you were fussed about things like minimum wage or segregation or Jim Crow laws or, you know. Drinking water that wasn't actually clean. We practice historical denialism every day of our lives. We have to. It's the way we survive. You write that what they mean is that they miss that we what we understand, sorry, emotively to be the central core of the holiday, not the lives we have, but the lives we would like to have in a world where family, religion, personal and social relationships are built on firm foundations. How much is Christmas about giving us a false sense of stability and firm foundations? Um, I don't think it's false as such. I think we use these beliefs to bolster up our image of the world we live in so that we can keep going every day. If we looked around and saw the real horrors that exist every day, everywhere, we would all just throw up our hands in despair. So we tell ourselves stories, Um, whether it is the story of our own life, which so we, we create a narrative, to give a sense of meaning to our lives, or whether it is the story of our society, which Christmas is part of that story, we create these so that we can function. Is Christmas, if we are looking for hope in our past instead of in our future, is Christmas more reactionary instead of progressive? neutral. I think it's the people who market who make those decisions. So I think reactionary people's Christmas is reactionary. Progressive people's Christmas is progressive. I think that Christmas itself is is value neutral. I don't think that we can make those claims for it. 
You also point out all the inconsistencies around the stories in the Gospels, in, I believe, Luke and Matthew, where they're talking about uh, the birth of Christ and how there's sheeps in the field, so it can't be December 25th, how it's happening during a tax system that uh, would be under Herod, but actually it didn't happen under Herod, how there seems to be all these historical inconsistencies with the story of Christ's birth being on December 25th. To you, what explains why if there's all these obvious and blatant inconsistencies, historical inconsistencies that can be brought up rather easily, to you, what explains why the Church selected December 25th then to be Christmas? Well, I think they selected it for... um some of the same reasons that I mentioned that Christmas is a logical time for a party, uh, the, the seasonal reasons. And because of those reasons, you also have, therefore, uh, pre-Christian, a clutch of holidays, which the, the celebration of which leak into what later became the Christmas celebration. So you have, as you mentioned much earlier, um, Saturnalia, which is slightly before um, the solstice. You had after it, as you also mentioned, the Calends, the Roman New Year, which run from the 1st to the 3rd of January. And you had on the 25th itself, you had the birth of the unconquerable sun, the birth of the god Mithras, which was by the end of the Roman Empire the um, predominant religion of the Roman Empire. We don't know a lot about Mithraism, but we do know that on the 25th of December, the god Mithras is born in a cave witnessed by two shepherds. And indeed, one of the proto-gospels, not one of the um, four gospels, but one of the others, uh, also claims that Christ is born in a cave. And of course, we know about the shepherds. So what the church does, as I said, the church has historically co-opted the elements that are not Christian and grafted them on to use them, whether it's the Christmas tree in Sunday schools or in this case, much more core, the nativity itself. They chose the day of the nativity to be the day that people were already used to celebrating the birth of a god. We have been speaking with Judith Flanders. She is author of Christmas, a biography. You can find the bibliography, chapter notes, primary sources, and secondary sources for Christmas, a biography at christmas-biography.com. Follow Judith on Twitter at Judith Flanders. Find out more at judithflanders.co.uk. Judith, we have one last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You quote Scrooge's nephew, Fred, telling Scrooge, Christmas is a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and will do me good. And I say, God bless it. How much 
do you think Christmas is penance for any collective guilt we may have for the way we act throughout the year? How much does Christmas allow us to be Scrooges the rest of the year? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I, one of the things that's so interesting about that Dickens passage, which, by the way, makes me cry every time I read it, um, is the bit that's never in the movie adaptation is where he says, we're fellow passengers to the grave. Dickens is very dark. This is not about, oh, look at all the happy people. We're fellow passengers to the grave. So for God's sakes, let us help people en route, is what he is telling us. We're all going to, no one is going to get out of here alive. And I think that Dickens' much darker message is one that we really don't want to hear. So in that sense, I think we do disregard the real meaning of Christmas for the superficial meaning of Christmas far more often than perhaps Dickens would have hoped for. We've just heard clips today, starting with This Is Hell, which interviews Judith Flanders in three clips today about how Christmas has really always been whatever you want it to be. Past Present discussed some of the origins and underlying motifs of the war on Christmas. The Chauncey de Vega show explored the connection between white supremacy, identity, and the war on Christmas. And Messy, Mouthy, Mandatory had the compulsory discussion about which Christmas carols we should be outraged by. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips in which we will actually discuss some of this year's War on Christmas flare-ups with Fox News, just for fun, to hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hello, Jay, and everyone tuning in. This is Jeff. I'm calling from the mountains of California, where I work as a wilderness ranger in the summer up in the Sierras, and currently I'm in a little town north of Lake Tahoe. Really enjoyed your podcast, particularly the calm way that you present things and your well-thought-out, timely shows. I'm very tired of people screaming at each other, as most of us are. I think we really need a good uh, resurrection in dialogue and connection in this world. Um, I think that these discussions can help do just that. And I sort of um, wrote down a bunch of thoughts because this is a huge topic, and I, I'm going to have to work really hard to keep this short. But hopefully uh, I can keep it engaging. Um, so I've spent several years of my life in Brazil um, studying music, language, history, culture, and most importantly, just kind of getting to know folks and make some very good friends there. So the last show on the election down there really struck home. And for a while, I've wanted to comment on numerous ideas you've brought up, especially uh, your climate crisis show a week ago. But today, I was finally pushed to call. I just have many, many thoughts about this uh, heartbreaking situation in Brazil, and I'll try to stay focused on a couple today. Again, this this will be hard. <laughs> but um, I, I think first, there's just startling comparisons to the way that the radical right has seized power, both here in the U.S. and in Brazil. 
as only but two examples in what is clearly an earth-wide crisis, I think, which is my basic observation today. I observe this in some detail down there, having spent a lot of time in northeastern Brazil during Lula's presidency and then during the very problematic impeachment of Dilma Rousseff, who was removed from power by people significantly more corrupt, to put it mildly, than she or the Workers' Party ever were. Um, in some ways, it's similar to the Democrats here. The Workers' Party, or the PT, is painted as radical left, but it's fairly moderate in reality. Um, I would say U.S. politics are a lot more timid than Latin America, from what I've seen, where often there just aren't stable institutions to protect those basic rights, as I believe Greenwald pointed out. Um, here, you know, the media will just make you into a radical Muslim, liberal, whatever, but there you can be murdered in the streets, as was uh, Marielle Franco in Rio. And I would actually be amazed if Lula survives Bolsonaro's presidency. Um, while I was there in 2015 and 16 during the so-called anti-corruption protests, which culminated in that impeachment of Dilma, I was at first very shocked by the eerily similar way that the right was able to demonize the center-left. Here, that's Obama and Clinton. There, that's Lula and Dilma. Um, they use the same tactics, the social media, the fake news, these utterly absurd false accusations, slogans, and just an absolute disregard for truth. And it soon became, it became apparent to me that the same forces are probably behind these anti-democratic and right-wing authoritarian seizures of political power now done through pseudo-legal and electoral processes. But depending on your nation's institutional stability and particular history, this is going to take a different form. In the U.S., you can manipulate and steal a close election. It may get overturned in a court. In Brazil, you can threaten a military coup if needed. And then, if needed, you could probably do it, which was a very real, real fear this year in Brazil. But it was all created, the climate was created by this same attack on truth and all this fake news media. So this year, they discovered a way that they could quote-unquote win an election. Yet clearly, it's harder to call these processes democratic when they're driven by this utterly false propaganda, which manipulates millions of people's opinions. Um, yet there's this very legitimate anger in both of our country's working classes, which is what you talked about very, very well in the show. Um, and this, this economic policy was pretty warmly embraced by both Democrats here and to some extent the PT in Brazil. So imagine if the left-wing movement actually threatened to replace this crumbling e economic structure. Yet even the thought of this forced these reactionary forces in, into action and created this wave of uh, fake news, media manipulation. And as a result, also in both of our countries, Tens of millions of people came to so thoroughly hate a person or a party that they would actually vote to have a radical right-wing, racist, sexist, homophobic, etc., etc., as a leader. And we see this model being repeated all over the globe, Europe turning hard right and now South America. It's truly, it truly can happen anywhere, and it's obviously becoming more and more appealing to people. So I'd love to talk more about all this. Um, I just have a hundred thoughts on all of this, having spent so much time in Brazil. Um, but I just want to urge folks to see this as a global right-wing backlash. In every era of recent history, soon after significant social change, comes a radical white right-wing backlash. Studying U.S. history, this is clear to see over and over and over. And it becomes clear to me more each day 
that we all have been given one of these eras, these difficult eras in which to live. Um, knowing Brazil and some of their beautiful and very painful history, I really fear that this particular Brazilian-style backlash, right-wing backlash, will be much more violent than in the U.S. and could lead to some absolute terror in black and indigenous communities there, which already suffer massive violence and poverty. Not to mention, uh, as you also point out very well, um, the, the outright assault on the Amazon and the ecological disaster that was discussed. This is really the only issue in the end, is what this is all leading to. And I urge everyone to stay tuned into Brazil and elsewhere. All over the globe, we have to find strategies to, in the end, what we're supporting is, is the Earth herself. Um, and it should be clear to us that this global right-wing backlash intends to wage its last war against the Earth herself. From Standing Rock and now to Brazil, it appears to be a final attempt by those in power to pillage the remaining so-called resources as this global economy utterly collapses. Climate disasters rattle every nation. And so I believe that what our response to this crisis becomes in the coming years will define this era. Um, but thanks so much. Uh, appreciate your show. Appreciate your time. Obrigado. Ciao. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And obrigado to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, Tyler, who we did not hear from today, called in, left a message. I'm going to tell you what he said because the audio quality was too terrible. Uh, he called in asking about feelings and progressives and is it possible that progressives uh, care too much about feelings? He, and to be really clear, clear and fair to Tyler, he asked the question in sort of a, I know there's a, a good explanation for this. Maybe you could do a show explaining why it's important. He sort of admitted, like, look, I sometimes find myself feeling that feeling that, that, that like, oh, come on, can't we just get over it? Why doesn't, why doesn't that person just get over it? And, and it really sounded like he knew, look, I, I know I probably shouldn't be feeling this way, but I am feeling this way. So he was sort of suggesting that as a topic for a show. I, I don't know that I can do a whole topic on it for, you know, full episode, but I will give my thoughts. And as, you know, it's Christmas time, or at least uh, it's close enough because today's the Christmas episode. So good enough time to talk about feelings. Uh, so first of all, the whole question of does the left talk about feelings too much, not enough, is that what we care about and we lose sight of other things? As soon as you've asked that question, you've completely lost track of the point and have been led astray because the fact is both sides do feelings. Both sides care a lot about feelings. And it, it, frankly, it's just like identity politics. It's like saying that the left is obsessed with identity politics, whereas the right is not. But what they really mean is that the right cares about the identity of whiteness and the left cares about the identity of other people who are not necessarily white. So the same goes with feelings. D does the left care about feelings? Yeah, of course we do. Does the right? 
absolutely. I mean, you can go back just taking uh, successful presidential campaigns, going back to Bush when I was paying attention, you know, when I started paying attention. Um, that whole campaign could be summed up with the idea that people wanted to have a beer with him and they just felt like he was a good and honorable person who they could pal around with. And so they liked him for that. And like with Trump, besides the feeling tough and embracing your manliness and your whiteness and everything else, you know, they actually talk to coal miners, you know, because as we know, the media is obsessed with talking to Trump voters and asking them, what in God's name were you thinking? And what some coal miners said was, look, we know he wasn't going to bring the jobs back. We're not idiots. We know coal is going out, but it just felt good to have him talk to us and say that he cared about our issue. It, was, it just felt nice for him to say he was going to try. And those examples are, are just the ones that conservatives would probably still deny had to do with feelings. So let's give it a couple more examples. Uh, let's go with gun control and, and mass shootings. Let's all say together what conservatives say the answer to mass shootings is. Mental health care. So do you care about feelings or don't you? Do, does, the, uh, does what's going on in people's heads matter or doesn't it? And, and not only, uh, you know, as the left would say, the mental health and taking care of it is good in its own right, but if you're advocating for mental health care to fight something like uh, like mass shootings, well, then you're clearly advocating for mental health, not just for the individual, but for the good of society. And just just to, if there's any doubt left, <laughs> drive home one more point: PTSD, soldiers coming home from war with PTSD. Should we tell them to buck up and get over it? Is there anyone left in the country who thinks that? No, of course not. Because we've learned enough. We know enough about how it all works. We understand how important it is to take care of people's mental health. And as we know, the country fetishizes the military. So if anyone needs to be taken care of, it's the members of the military. So thank you. We've all agreed mental health care is important. Feelings are important. What's going on inside people's heads matters, not only on the individual level, but on the societal level. So with, with that squared away, let's move on to another part of it. And this is where there really is a divide, where the left cares a lot about this part and the right does not. And that's actual harm. So for instance, slurs based on race, gender, sexual orientation, that sort of thing, it's not to fight against those things is not just about protecting the feelings or the mental health of the targeted group. It's about reducing actual harm. So for example, murder and suicide rates are higher in the LGBTQ community, and that is not exclusively due to the existence of insulting slurs against them, but a society that excuses slurs fosters these unwelcoming dynamics that increases depression within the community, makes it more likely for violence to be done against members of the community. And like, this is not a long stretch. It shouldn't be difficult to understand this sort of thing. But that is exactly what conservatives constantly downplay or ignore entirely so that they can say, hey, just get over it. It's just your feelings. 
Don't worry about it. Uh, don't make me change my ways. Don't make me, uh, don't suggest that I need to talk differently or think anything differently because if they can convince you that it's only your feelings at risk and they can say, hey, you know, you have control over your own feelings. You, you can decide to feel bad or not feel bad. Then they can relieve themselves of any responsibility they may have, not only for how they make other people feel, but how they may actually incite violence against other people. But to keep it light, you know, Christmas episode, uh, to bring it to the war on Christmas, all, all of the conversations, all of the defenders of Christmas, almost all of their arguments are based on how they feel and what makes them feel good. You know, th those who, um, you know, they, they want to, maybe it's cold outside, taken off the radio. They're not saying that because they personally feel offended or because they think someone will have their feelings hurt. You know, they're concerned about anything in society that perpetuates a culture that says it's acceptable for men to pressure women to have sex against their will. That's not about feelings. That's about trying to avoid real-world harm. And I'm going to get more into this on, on the bonus episode. But the ridiculous thing about that debate is that the white men who go on Fox News to complain about political correctness running out of control end up defending their position by hearkening back to what makes them feel personally good. They literally just talk about how old songs that they grew up with make them feel good and nostalgic, and therefore they shouldn't be questioned. And anyone who's questioning them just wants to kill your good time, like presumably for no reason, just because, you know, they like tearing things down for the sake of tearing things down, because they hate traditionalism, because they hate conservatives, whatever. They, they, they make up all these reasons because they either don't know, they don't understand, or, or they very much specifically want to avoid the idea like there is any connection between things that are said, either slurs or old songs that are <laughs> pretty pretty far out of date, and, uh, and, and real-world effects, real-world harm. They, they want to disconnect those things entirely and say that essentially nothing, nothing matters. Nothing that's said means anything. That's their argument. So, so don't get tricked into asking whether the left cares too much about feelings because the question itself already misses the point and frames the discussion in a way that is intended to put the left on defense when they should not be there at all. Everyone cares about feelings. It's just a question of whose feelings do we care about, just like we all care about identity. Some of us just have a narrower scope of which identities we care about. And any discussion of feelings that doesn't include the connection to real-world harm is, again, missing such a large part of the topic as to make it effectively worthless. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on this or anything else. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. 
Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.